0: All right, welcome to episode four of The Riser. I'm Greg Strong, the Canadian Press, along with Ted Wyman, the Winnipeg Sun and Post Media. Ted, how are you?
1: I'm fantastic, my friend. You know, in two days, I'm going to be going to Mexico, and it's pretty hard to not be happy right now, because no more Manitoba winter, at least for a couple of weeks.
0: How sweet it is. It's good to be Teddy. And uh, it's also... (laughs) I am i got to say, I'm very excited to have uh, Hall Kelly as our guest from the Globe and Mail. He's a longtime sports columnist and also an author, and uh, he'll be joining us shortly. Ted, uh, an exciting weekend of sports. I was flipping through the dial on Saturday night, and it was just, I mean, anything and everything. Turling, hockey, NFL football. It's a great time of year to be a sports fan. What stood out to you when you think back on the past couple of days?
1: Man, you're right on Saturday. It was Hockey Day in Canada. There was games all day long. There was the Grand Slam of curling going on. There was NFL games all over the place. It was really exciting. But did you catch the the Buffalo Bills-Kansas City game on Sunday night? That one really did catch my eye. I'm sure it did for a lot of people in your part of the world. The center of the universe likes their Buffalo Bills, I know. But, uh, you know, it was wild. I mean, honestly, the game is one thing. Patrick Mahomes has been to the AFC Championship every year that he's been in the NFL. It's insane. The Chiefs are off to the AFC Championship again. It's it's hard to believe. And the poor Bills and the poor Bills fans, they lose again on a kick that goes wide right. I mean, can you believe that? But really, the star of that whole show to me was Jason Kelsey. He wasn't even in the game. He's Travis Kelsey's brother. He's up in a a luxury suite with Taylor Swift and a whole bunch of other people. And he's crushing beers. He's got his tarp off. He's jumping out in the stands and celebrating with the fans, even though I think they were cheering for the other team than he was. And it was absolutely hilarious to watch. Like, what a man of the people, I got to tell you. And who makes a cameo but Winnipeg Blue Bombers quarterback, Zach Caleros, who happened to be roommates. With Travis Kelsey and Jason Kelsey back in college, so there he is sitting in a suite with Taylor Swift and Jason Kelsey watching the game. A lot of people in Winnipeg like that one.
0: <laughs> but plenty of great content in the Winnipeg Sun. I'm sure you gave that a good run. Nice kicker story there. Let's uh, let's uh, swing into Kahal's uh, moment here. We've got uh, we've got about 15 minutes with Kahal. We're hoping, and uh, I've got a little intro well, a little intro here that Teddy fashioned. It's uh, it's just great. I'm going to read a few lines. And then add a couple lines myself. So yeah, sports columnist and author Cahal Kelly, known for his wit and storytelling in covering some of the biggest events in the world over the last 20 years. Cahal also won the Stephen Leacock Memorial Medal for Humor in 2019 for his childhood memoir, Boy Wonders. Now, Ted, you know how some guitarists just have their own sound. I'm thinking Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, Neil Young, Jimi Hendrix, my opinion. Cajal has his own writing style that few, if any, in the sports columnist world can match. Cajal, welcome to the riser.
2: Wow, what an intro. Thank you very much, Greg.
0: Wow, that's a lot. Tom Morello,
2: come on. <laughs> I mean, it's a Tom Morello reference. I thought, you know, if you said Hendrix or something, I would have been like, uh, but Tom Morello, that's incredible. Thank you.
0: I'm popping your tires here. And I wanted to start question yeah. like right out of the gate. I, I read Boy Wonders, now refresh my memory. I believe you spent some time working in a bookstore as a youngster. Can you tell us about your love of reading? Obviously dozens of books behind you there and how books helped shape your path to becoming a national sports columnist.
2: Oh, that's an interesting. Uh, yeah, that's my favorite thing to do. I would say that's my purpose in life if I had one professionally. It's not to write, it's to read. Um, yeah, I did work in a bookstore through university spent a lot of time reading and a lot of time ignoring customers. That's a minimum wage job. That's, that's a tough job. That's a lot of schlepping books. It's not as sexy as they make it look in the movies. Um, But yeah, the reading I think prepares you, you know, obviously I get asked a lot as I'm sure the both of you do about how you get into this work and what you should do and how you prepare yourself. And, and mostly I say, don't, it's a terrible idea, become an engineer instead, then you'll actually have a job. Uh, but if you're, if you're determined to do this kind of work, uh, I think writing, practice writing, and that's the other thing that drives me nuts. When people say, um, you become a writer by writing. I don't think that's true at all. I think you learn the craft of it, especially sports writing, because there is a lot of specialized skill involved in covering a game, writing a buzzer beater. But if you wanna actually understand writing, you have to read. Uh, So read as much as you can. And essentially what you do is, I I think a writing style, isn't something you develop yourself. It's something you rip off uh, other better writers. Like, I mean, uh, obviously a lot of novelists, but when I think of sports writing in particular, I was thinking of this a lot this week because of Sports Illustrated. And I don't know about you guys, but that was such an important part of my teenage years, getting those magazines through the slot, reading them on the porch, um, wouldn't even go inside. Frank DeFord, Rick Riley, Gary Smith, uh, Lee Montville, like just incredible incredible writers and it was the reading that prepared me to do it i didn't realize it at the time i didn't i had no goal to be a sports writer but uh those guys uh and they were mostly guys prepared me to do this work
1: man you ripped the next question right out of my mouth cuz i wanted to talk to you about sports illustrated that's a a crazy thing that just happened uh, it's been a pretty big decline for what was once i think you know the absolute pinnacle of sports writing uh, that I would get every every week um, and read many of the writers that you've already talked about. And it's just, it, it went downhill to becoming a more watered down um, online version in a lot of ways, they had an AI scandal. Um, and then now we've been told that every single person that works there has been laid off. And I, you know, I don't think they've exactly said what their future is, but it sure doesn't sound good. Um, how devastating is that you know just for our industry in general when you think about something that was just so high up there and now we just we don't have that and, and i'm gonna throw one thing in. it's a bit of an opinion from me but like the world is becoming more in in sports is becoming so much about pat mcafee and people like that was sort of a shock you know shock jock style of sports and we're losing that craft of it that was so evident in the pages of Sports Illustrated.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's an, always a there's always the issue of aging yourself out when you start talking about this stuff. Because, you know, back in the good old days, I'm sure that people were reading Sports Illustrated in the 80s and were thinking some people like us thinking, like, Oh God, I remember when sports writing was really great in the 50s. Um but yeah, it is quite sad. Like I, I I went back in, into a bit of a Sports Illustrated wormhole to read some of my favorite pieces. And one of them is a, a, a Gary Smith profile of Mike Tyson. And then I started reading profiles of Gary Smith. Like, Gary Smith, back in the day, can you imagine this? Like, it's just the industry has changed so much. He had so much money. He was allowed to live anywhere he liked. And his contract with Sports Illustrated for the entirety of his 30 years there was he wrote four times a year. So his pay massive money to write four pieces a year. And that was considered a good deal for Sports Illustrated to have such a great writer, write these you know, 15, 20,000 word profiles. And the access they got, that's the other thing that drives me crazy. <laughs> like you read those pieces, nobody gets this access anymore. Like it's all mitigated through PR staff. You, you know, the, the moments, the idea of going for a coffee or a beer with an athlete now, uh, unless they're playing tiddlywinks, is it's just laughable. Like I, I, it would never, ever, ever happen. And so it's harder to write those human stories. Um, yeah, I, I, I get quite wistful about it, because that was written in a way that allowed you. To, you know, they they were the last word on everything. I miss that last word. It, now, sports journalism and all journalism, but sports journalism especially, is so right now. What am I thinking? Right now. What is the idea? Right now. And you know, it used to be that if somebody won the Super Bowl. Fine, you'd seen the game and you read the paper the next day, but it didn't really, the Super Bowl didn't end for you until five days later when you got Sports Illustrated. And then you got the real story. I I mean, I miss that slow pace and an agreed upon uh, Bible of sports. And we don't have anything like that anymore. That's just me being, that's me being like, I mean, I I realize I have become like, what you said earlier,
0: like long time columnist, it's true.
2: Like, I am now a dinosaur uh, of my own time.
0: As sad as the decline in access has been, guys, uh, often we do get the chance to write what we see, sometimes on the way to the game, sometimes on the way back, sometimes when we're in a host city somewhere. And I'm reminded, Cahal, when I think back to your writing at the World Cup in Brazil in 2014, some of the more interesting pieces, I thought, were some of the you know bus station interactions you had or hopping on a media bus and and looking at you know the Brazilian countryside things like that when you think back to that time Cajal what jumped out at you from your travels in that country covering that event
2: oh I mean there's a million things but I, I mean this is the way I've always tried to approach it uh I can't explain sports to people like we really like we work in the one branch of journalism I think it's fair to say, where the people who read our stuff know as much as us, you know, maybe they may not have the same kind of access, they may not watch as much as us because we're paid to do it, they have actual lives, and they're too busy to watch, you know, the same team every night, Uh, but they probably know about as much as us about what's going on. So it's difficult to write with that kind of in this that, you know, you're explaining things to people. Like, there's not much point of me going to Brazil and like explaining a soccer game. Uh, I mean, you saw it. I saw it like I don't have any sort of inside dope that you don't have about what happened and why. So when I go to these places, the thing I think I try to write is uh, if you were here, what's it like to be here? I think that's what people are interested in. Like, what's it like to be there? What does it look like? How are the people? like? So those are the stories, like bus stations fascinate me, anywhere people congregate, big crowds, uh, favelas there. And I realize I'm skimming the surface. Like, I have no, and I try to be forthright about that in the writing. I, like, I'm not giving you a final word on anything. I'm just giving you a complete tourist's view of something and try to make it a bit fun. Um, that World Cup, I mean, that was... That was another World Cup that was supposed to be a complete disaster because nobody in Brazil wanted it, like just about every World Cup. The people there hate it. I remember at the opening game they were rioting outside they were rioting outside the stadium for the opening game. Uh, but you know people the allure of those big games is that I mean the people who run the Olympics and the World Cup, that's what they understand is they understand people will be enraged because you've ripped them off, you've cost too much, they've gone bankrupt. but once it starts, it just sucks everybody in, they, they can't help themselves. You guys have covered enough of these big things to know. People never stay mad. Like day one or day two, they might be mad. By day three, they're just totally in them.
1: I can't help but wonder, Kahal, what your thoughts are then on how it was to cover the Olympics in Beijing in that crazy bubble. I mean, all three of us were there. For, for people who don't know, uh, we had to take buses from our hotels out through a locked gate through the streets of Beijing into another lock gate, and then had to take buses from venue to venue. You were never allowed to even walk from one venue to another. It was a complete bubble, and obviously it was due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But when you talk about telling those stories in Brazil, being the bus stations and the people, it's pretty hard to do that in a situation like we had in Beijing, wasn't it?
2: It was incredibly difficult. That was such a dispiriting Olympics because it was so... There was no atmosphere. Everybody seemed, I mean, the volunteers were great. They're always great. They're kids, which is why they're great. But then you start thinking about the fact, like, why isn't the guy working in the hotel restaurant? Why doesn't he look like he's having fun? Well, because they locked him into the bubble eight weeks before I got here. And he'll be here eight weeks after I got here. Like, he's stuck here for essentially, I think we worked it out. Those people were there for five months. They were in the bubble by themselves, living in, Shipping containers, uh, you know, while I'm, we were staying in three, four, five-star hotels. I mean, that to me was the most bizarre event. I don't know about you guys, but the most bizarre thing I've ever covered. Um, I lived in total fear of testing positive for COVID some morning and then just being disappeared. Um, but in its way, fascinating. Like my favorite bit, I remember that. Do you remember they used to take, uh, when you went a great distance to a venue, they would take you still on a city bus and they would pack up the city bus so that you were standing, like, you know, strap hanging. And then they would get on a highway and they would go about 120, 130 kilometers an hour. And then I remembered that they had had put out a thing that said all the residents of Beijing, they were so worried about this quarantine. All the residents of Beijing were told if you come across one of these buses crashed and people are spread out on the ground, don't come near them, don't help them. They might have COVID. So I thought, like, even if we get into a fender bender in this thing, we're going to be going out the front windshield like Tomahawk missiles. And if I happen to survive that, I will then die on the pavement because no one is coming to help me. It was a weird, weird. Like, what was your, Greg, have you had occasion yet to tell your famous uh, Pyeongchang up the mountain story?
0: Oh, not on this podcast, but that's a beauty.
2: That's like, that deserves its own podcast, that story. Like, I mean, those are the moments, like, that's the thing about being a sports writer and you guys know, you can't get them all into your copy, but you don't like people's like, what was it like to be there when so-and-so scored the goal? And, you know, occasionally that's true that you have those moments and they really stick in your mind. But for the however many thousands of games of all different sports I've seen, I can remember like five, like, you know, and people will have to remind me I was there. The stories I remember are things that happened in the bar, on the bus some stupid thing one of my beloved colleagues has done those are the stories that stick with me those are the stories we tell when sports writers get together they don't tell sports stories they tell sports writer
0: stories so for those wondering i i went on a hike across the road from our uh,
2: village no you can't, no you need way more of a setup you, yeah, you need to talk just like 15 <laughs> minutes to this you can't just rip this off in like two minutes it's too good a story
0: I went off the beaten path and I was escorted back. That's all I'll say. Yeah. it's yeah, We'll save it for later on. It was a a beauty though. Mm. My next question. I mean, obviously uh, sometimes in the gamer slash column business, you have to be a little bit critical of the athletes of the teams. I'm wondering, uh, and I can only imagine what that's like for a columnist. When you're going into the locker room the next day or later that week, after writing about players, teams, executives, Have you ever had any challenges in those locker rooms in the days that followed?
2: I've had, you know, it's gotten, I've been in this now for 16 years. Uh, It was more at the beginning. It's weird. I think they figured out, or at least they're told by agents or PR staff on their own teams. I don't know about you guys. I used to get a lot more when I covered it in the beginning that I would have angry confrontations with people. And it was always, almost always, at least, like sometimes it is true, I said this terrible thing about you, uh, and they get very angry. Often, it was like broken telephone, like, you know, their their wife read it, or their agent read it, and then said something to them about it, and they sort of misinterpreted what was said, and then they come up to you, and they're really angry. I had a real, a couple of real, like, angry run-ins with uh, the Jays pitcher, A.J. Burnett, who I actually quite liked, but if he was upset with you, like he was he had no filter, like it was just like screaming. Um, you know, he he was a bit unhinged, but in a way I kind of enjoyed. Jose Bautista I had some issues with uh he was another one, he wasn't unhinged, but like you know, he, he would if he was upset, you knew he was upset. Um but yeah, for the most part, you hear about it later, maybe. I don't think they want to give you the satisfaction anymore. I think that's it. I don't know about you guys. I don't think they want to give you the satisfaction. So even if they're angry, and though I do often get get caught, like when you when you talk to someone, um, usually at the more coach executive level, and they'll say, of course, they're like, you know, they always have the same pattern. Uh, I want you to write what you're going to write. I understand you have a job to do. I don't take it personally. And you know, the truth is, is they always say this truth is I don't read it. I, I don't read anything. I had one executive say, I read everything, but I read it two weeks after it's printed. (laughs) And I was trying to think, how does that exactly work? Like you have your two week, but anyway, they go, I I don't read it. Honestly, I don't read it. And then the conversation will go on 10 minutes and they forget themselves. And then they say, but remember when you said, you remember when you wrote and you're like, well, like, obviously you have a very good secretary or something is really keeping you abreast of stuff or you're reading. They all read it. They all read it. Uh, the smart ones see it as, or the ones who want to stay sane, I think see it as a bit of a game. They understand as long as it's not personal, like, as long as you're not taking really personal shots, which I don't do, so as, as you don't mention their families, which I would never do, um, they, they understand it's all part of it, the professionals.
1: This is fantastic insight, Kahal. I would think we'd be remiss not to ask you a bit about some current events in the sports world and, uh... And get your take. Maybe, uh, who knows, people will be mad at you for what you say now. Uh, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, the, the Raptors and Leafs in particular interest me. Uh, from where I sit, it's kind of an unbelievable situation with the Raptors right now. Because when you think about it, you know, uh, I was driving down the past the McDonald's locally here the, yesterday. And there's a big sign out front about the Siakam swirl that they're promoting, right? Well, he's not even the Raptors anymore. Nobody is. And I saw someone on Twitter today say... They've gutted my team, and with it, all my love and loyalty to the team. I wish them well, but I'm done. So that's a little dramatic, but I'm just wondering what you think the climate is for a Raptors fan right now.
2: I can't, the team has made something like I'm I, 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 like I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in any of these, but to me, they've made some questionable choices about whether they thought they had the team for right now, or the team, or it was a whether it was a tear down or a semi rebuild, or they were just taking the roof off, but they're gonna maybe change the windows, but they're gonna leave the floors. Um, I'm not sure they knew. Uh, The thing about it is the way I always think about the Raptors and the Leafs is that there's two things happening there. There's the sports team and the business. Um, The business in both instances is massively successful, hugely, hugely successful. And one of the rare instances in pro sport where ownership controls broadcast, uh, they control most of the media, uh, not to say that they are telling the media what to say, but they're a they're a one-stop shop. Like they're horizontally integrated. They've got it all. It is, MLSE might be, you know, the finest sports business in North America. Certainly not the biggest, but in terms of efficiencies, it's way ahead of the game. And in Everybody knows, like we're transplanted to your own life, like if you have the kind of job where everything is going great and money's being made and no one's on your back and ownership is like, your boss is like, just, you know, as long as the work gets done at the end of the day, I don't care how you do it. You're not exactly going to kill yourself, are you? This is not to say they don't want to win. It's not to say that anybody thinks that they, like, losing is okay. Absolutely not. But you're not going to take any wild swings, are you? if you run those teams, because why would you? That's the only way you put your job in jeopardy is when you do something wild. So why not just keep re-signing the same guys? Or why not just sit around and watch the team, in the right case of the Raptors, dissipate to nothingness? Because you know you're gonna get more chances. Everything can happen slowly. That's how you explain it to yourself, I'm sure, is you say to yourself, "Uh, it's not that I'm not making change, it's just I don't wanna be rash. So what I, you know, what the New York Yankees might have to do in six months, because everybody might get fired, or Real Madrid or Barcelona, I'm going to do in six years. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll try the next six years. That's, I think, the story of those franchises.
1: Thank you.
0: Our last one, Cajal. I uh, wanted to let folks know that in 2020, you were nominated for National Newspaper Award oh, in part yeah. for your coverage of the... Tim Horton's Briar, as it was known at that time. Now <laughs> honestly, we weren't going to talk about curling in this interview hit, but I was curious when you first, it was, I believe it was your first Briar, when you went to Kingston that year, what were your expectations and what were your takeaways now that you've had a few years to
2: think Well, about? that was it's hard to think about that one because that was really pre-COVID. Remember this? That was days before COVID. I remember on the way home, I stopped at a freshco and bought like $500 worth of canned goods on the way home. I think in it was in Kingston. Yeah, like I looked, like I literally filled the car with tuna on the way home, which as it turned out was idiotic, but whatever. Uh, what was my take of that briar? It was, you know, you're so amped for it because you're told, even if you don't know anything about curling, which is me, um, you understand what it means. The briar means something to you. Uh, it was even better. What I couldn't get over was the the atmosphere of relaxation. Like I I get that it's a very high quality sports tournament, but guys are just rolling off the field of play and leaning over the barrier and very happy to talk. Average people. It took me back, you know, you keep hearing about this bygone time when athletes were average people and had to go work on farms in the summer, you know, the Bobby Orr, Bobby Hall myths, um, I've never seen it, uh, but this was the closest I ever got. They were regular people. They were funny, um, they were guileless. Uh, I just loved them. I loved covering it. Um, because most of us that you know, they're so guarded, they're afraid of you, they should be like they're quite right to be. Um, they're afraid of saying something stupid, uh, because they can end it all now, like they live in a really weird world where if one ill-judged comment, that's caught on camera can end a career or certainly, you know, hobble a career to the point where it never recovers. So I just like, I mean, it made me think that I realized they're not amateurs, but th- that spirit of amateurism, I'd love to cover more sports like that.
1: Well, plus you got to hang out with Greg and I. Of course, that was the real highlight on the Meteorizer. <laughs> Maybe a couple of pops out on the town as well. I have just one more and I know we got to let you go, Cajal, but this one I think you're going to like. I was I ran into Fred Degg, who is a Canadian press reporter uh, in Montreal, and uh, he was talking about our favorite bar in Sochi. Bar number four. Oh, number four, yeah. Bartender was very friendly with us. And he yep. is among those who's convinced that our bartender was a KGB agent. So I've uh, at one time had this discussion with you. Do you believe that our bartender was a KGB
2: agent? Our bartender, Ruslan. Remember he was Ruslan. Uh Yes. I, I, like KGB agent. Like I I, I think <laughs> he was a cop. I think he was a cop of some sort because he told us some ridiculous story at the beginning. He was like Rob Longley from The Sun. Rob Longley's best friend at one point. And... Uh, he told a story about how he came from a small village, uh, but his English was idiomatically perfect, like excellent, excellent English. And we asked him, How is your English so wonderful? And he said, Oh, I learned it from the TV. And we're like, okay. And then one night, while we were all in there, booze and booze and booze, and like blind drunk at four in the morning, a bunch of Fred, maybe Freddie was one of them, a bunch of Quebec journalists. Burst through the door and began shouting in French, and he started talking to them in French. So, what were these French movies that taught him perfect French as well as perfect English? You remember the thing with the mittens, him and the mittens? Do you remember that story?
1: Yeah, tell that story. Come on. That wasn't
2: very far. Well, one of the big things at that Olympics, the really big hot item at that Olympics was a Team Canada toque, those Hudson Bay toques. Uh, they were huge. And of course, you couldn't find them. The only people who brought them, there was no such thing as a as a like a merchandise there's no store selling Canada merch so the only people who had them were the athletes and the athletes families and he came to us one night Ruslan and said as we were sitting around a huge table and said can anybody get me a toque I want to get a toque for my girlfriend and I piped up you know like 12 beers deep because they had given us a, a welcome bag all of us had gotten this kind of gift bag and it had mittens it didn't have a toque but it had Team Canada can of mittens in it. And I said in my drunken enthusiasm, I'll give you the mittens. Uh, and Ruslan, my God, it was like, you know, I just said I'd give him a kidney. Oh, my friend, oh, I can't believe, you know, it really was the, with the very formal stand up and a kiss you on both cheeks slowly three times. And I'm like, okay, I was all pumped up. Like I was doing like Mother Teresa with the mittens. And I go staggering back to my room I go rooting around in my stuff. I find the mittens. I come staggering back to the bar and I give them the mittens and everybody at the table goes, yay! Like everybody's so excited. The mittens, of course, are wrapped. They're wrapped up in a packet like they're vacuum sealed. Hand them the mittens, sit down, feeling very good about myself. And about five minutes later, Ruslan comes back again, tables packed, taps me on the shoulder and says, this is not took And I said, yeah, I know it's, it's not a toque i did i said i didn't have a toque it's mittens he goes but it you, you don't have toque and i said no I, I explained this to you all i have is mittens and he goes oh no uh, you keep these <laughs> <laughs> there's total silence total humiliated silence and then steve simmons goes in that that nasal whine of his he goes it's like he slapped you across the face <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I can verify that story because I was sitting right there for the whole thing. What and a the real,
2: real kicker is that we continued to drink for about another hour. Then we got up and we left. And as I'm leaving, I hear footsteps behind me. It's Ruslan. Oh, I take mittens. He actually <laughs> took the mittens.
1: Well, how about that? And you know, Cajal and Greg, there's a very good chance that was one of the very uh, beginnings of something called the wraparound, which we... Uh, <laughs> created in Sochi and I knew it was going to get talked about at some time on this podcast but for those who would be wondering what that might be it meant uh, basically staying up all night part of it was working part of it was uh, cooling off with a few beverages and then when they brought out breakfast and served it you stuck around and had that too yeah uh, we've all we've all been uh, veterans of this uh, occasion. (laughs) How
2: many wraparounds did you do in Sochi?
1: Uh, All of them? (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <All> Old. <of them. laughs> I can't beat that record. Sochi yeah. was like it was. It was a very strange and obviously fixed Olympics, but I had a, a lot of fun. I loved Sochi.
1: Well, we brought Greg in for the wraparounds in uh, in Pyeongchang because he wasn't exactly. available. He was up in the mountains when we were in Sochi.
0: That's right. You came
2: in late. I remember you came for a final wraparound.
1: That's
0: right. Yeah, much quieter existence up in the mountains. The bars actually shut down early, like eleven or twelve. So it was. Uh, I was on a regular sleep. Let's get that trip until I made it down for the final night. And that was a uh, that was a good one.
2: Did you stay over that night?
0: I did. Yeah, because we had an early flight, uh, early trip to the airport. I think we were catching a bus somewhere. Did so you have I to sleep was, on someone's floor or couch? Someone's couch. Yeah. I oh think so.
2: god! And it was plastic wrapped, right? Remember, all the furniture was wrapped in yeah. <laughs> because it was becoming someone's apartment. All yeah. of the places we stayed, like, so that's like right. all of the appliances were wrapped in
0: plastic. It was becoming yeah. someone's apartment as soon as we left.
2: Yes, bizarre. That's right. That was a bizarre one. That was great another good trip. one.
0: Great trip and uh, great stories. Yeah. Thank you, Cajal. We Thank appreciate you. your time and uh, great to again see you on the road.
2: See you nice. at the Briar.
0: Yeah. Right on, buddy. I'll, sh- I'll show you around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks to Cajal Kelly for a uh, tremendous segment there. And now it's time, Ted, for some hot topics. And as always, the sports world delivering. There are some surprises, some interesting news developments in recent days. Let's start with the NHL. And as we record this today, just a few hours after, Corey Perry signs with the Edmonton Oilers. What were your initial takeaways from that signing, Ted?
1: I saw uh, a headline in uh, one of the Edmonton papers that said the city of second chances used to be city of champions. Well, they're going to go with this now because uh, the Oilers first reclaimed Evander Kane after he was released and uh, and out on his cast aside by the San Jose Sharks after a whole lot of troubles there followed by having troubles in Buffalo and before that having troubles in Winnipeg and the Oilers have turned him into a pretty big part of their team. And now, it's going to be Corey Perry who had a whole lot of uh, trouble with the Chicago Blackhawks so much so that he was released from the team. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting move. I'm not sure it's a great move. I, I I don't like personally, I think there's a lot to be said for team culture. And uh, when I watch uh, championship teams, I think I see a certain team culture there that is um, very bonded and it, it, you know, it, it plays such a big role in the team winning. I'm not sure that bringing in guys that have character issues is the best idea, but the Oilers have won, at, you know, what, 12 games in a row. It might be longer than that now. I can't remember where their streak is at. they playing absolutely great hockey. They've got Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Um, Their goaltender, Stuart Skinner, has been playing great. Darnell Nurse and Matthias Ekholm on the blue line. Mentioned Kane already. Like, they're deep, and they've got a lot going on with coach Chris Knobloch doing an excellent job since taking over. And I mean, I guess you can't argue that Corey Perry is a good player with a lot of playoff experience that can help them. I just wonder if it messes with their mojo at this point.
0: Yeah, always tough when you're riding a 12 or 13 game heater and you bring in a new player. Is that going to upset the dynamics? We'll find out. But I really like the signing and I was surprised that it was the Oilers. I thought I thought there would be a lot of interest in Perry, though, uh, just given that he's such a winner. He's one of those guys who wins. And he's also very irritating if you're the other team in the playoffs. And I think a lot of NHL teams really need that guy who's willing and keen to just park in front of the net, take his shots, get under the other team's skin, deliver some clutch goals here and there, and just be that third, fourth line guy that is an irritant. What a successful one. I really like the move. I think the Oilers scored here big time.
1: And I can honestly, just to follow on that, it's interesting, just from a Winnipeg perspective, the Jets played against the Ducks when Corey Perry was playing for them and he drove them nuts. And the Jets got swept in that series. The Jets played against the Montreal Canadiens in the playoffs in 2021. Corey Perry was a big part of that team for Montreal. The Jets got swept in the playoffs. Not saying the Edmonton Oilers are looking at that specifically, but you, know, you might remember what happened to a team that you could end up facing in the playoffs when that player was part of it. So in that sense, excellent move.
0: Okay. Moving from player signing to NHL coaches, Ted, an interesting week with Patrick Wah hired as coach at the New York Islanders. A lot of people wondering whether he can turn that team into a cup contender. And also a lot of talk here in this market about the future of Toronto Maple Leafs coach, Sheldon Keefe, an interesting always in the midseason, an interesting time. Teams need to decide whether they want to make that change. The aisles say yes, the leaf say no for now. What's uh, what are your takeaways and what are your predictions here going forward?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I don't know that there would be any connection between those two, Greg, but one thing you do know is when a team is considering making a move with a coach, they generally have someone in mind who they're going to replace him with and you have to have a good play good person in mind to replace him with if you're even going to consider the move so the islanders went ahead and made sure they got a guy who was available which was patrick well i mean he hasn't been wanted by that many teams to be honest he's uh he did coach in colorado he he was in doing junior hockey for a long time and now he's going to get a shot with the islanders and it's a i think it's a very intriguing hire because i think as a short-term solution he can really get a lot out of a team in a hurry and the Islanders are much better than their record has shown to this point. they got great goal tending. They got balance all over that team. They should be uh, not just a playoff team, but con- contending for the top spot um, in the division. And they haven't been. So I do think that is a move that could make real sense as for the Leafs. They're so up and down. It's hard to tell. One day you think, yeah, Keith's got to go the next minute. Well, no, they're not too bad. They're, they're they're in third place in the division again. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I, I think Keith's job is safer now. I mean, I the Leafs, yes, they have been inconsistent. They have had a lot of overtime slash shootout losses. But I still think the core of that team is so strong that they will make the playoffs. I, would I bet on them to go deep? Well, no. But they do have that potential. And I think Keith has had such a strong regular season record, losing four out of five, five out of six or whatever it was to me doesn't raise the let's change the coach alarm any higher than what it already is. Like it's, I think he's going to be the coach through the second half and, and into the playoffs. I I think they'll stick with, with Keith. And I think it's just a matter of a team that was in a bit of a slump.
1: Well, I can't help but wonder when you watch what happened with Edmonton, they were awful under Jay Woodcroft. They were just completely out of the thing, looking like they were going to have a lost season. They make a coaching change, and now they're just skyrocketing up the standings. And I don't think anybody would be shocked if they finished at or near first place and are big-time contenders in the Stanley Cup. So you can't help but but make that point that sometimes those coaching changes do do that. You might think it's going pretty well or okay with Sheldon Keefe. You do have to bear in mind that perhaps it could be better. And another one I wanted to bring up about the Leafs was John Tavares. I mean, the guy's gone, and now this is just as of when we're recording, he had gone eight games without a point. Uh, he's 33 years old. He's got an uh, $11 million contract. I mean, it's been suggested. Uh, I think Steve Simmons from the Toronto Sun actually suggested maybe that this guy, maybe they need to ask him to waive his no-trade clause so that they can somehow find a way to um, you know, get better? Maybe he's weighing them down a little bit. What's your thoughts on Johnny T?
0: Well, around $11 million a year. And what does he have, another year on his deal? I'd have to look. I don't have his contract deals in front of me, but that's a highly priced uh, veteran forward. And I'm not so sure the appetite would be as strong for a player who makes that kind of money and is going to want to be, you know, on the front line, front top two lines. I don't know whether there would be a lot of appetite around the league for a player like that, to be honest, who, you know, appears to be on a bit of a decline. He had a great start to the season uh, and looked like he was going to take this team to the next level, and it certainly tapered off over the midseason here. Whether he could pick it up for the second half will be one of the more intriguing storylines, I think, for the Leaf Nation going forward.
1: How would anybody fit him in, right? That's the that's the real hard part,
0: yeah, for sure. That's that'd, that'd be difficult for any team, no doubt. I think he'll stay in Toronto, and uh, I think this is their core, and they're gonna they're gonna live or die by it. So we'll see uh, we'll see what happens over the second half here. Let's uh, let's transition Teddy to the NFL playoffs, Always an exciting time of year for football fans. What did you uh, what did you make of the divisional matchups here over the past weekend? I know we touched on, some of the excitement in uh, Orchard Park, New York, but uh, some really intriguing storylines. And I think, you know, yes, the Bills Mafia is a, a top storyline here in Southern Ontario, but I was really intrigued by the Detroit Lions success. What did you yeah. make of uh, of the big playoff weekend?
1: Exactly what I was going to bring up. That atmosphere in Detroit was unbelievable. I never really have a horse in the race when it comes to the NFL. I like the I like the sport. I'm in some fantasy leagues. I'm in some pools where I try to pick winners and that kind of thing. But I don't really usually attach myself to one horse in that league. And I got to tell you, I was cheering outright for the Detroit Lions. That was just so exciting to see for a team that's been downtrodden for so long. Don't know if I like their chances in San Francisco. The 49ers just look unbelievable. But um, you know, great to see a fan base have that opportunity to have this team going forward. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, to, to see somehow that Patrick Mahomes has been in the league for six years and he's been in the AFC championship every year it has got to be one of the craziest stats I've ever, I could even imagine. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And what a matchup that is going to be where he goes uh, with the chiefs into Baltimore to take on Lamar Jackson and the Ravens who have been absolutely outstanding this year. I really do think it's going to be a Ravens 49ers Super Bowl. Um, I don't know, I think when you got Lamar Jackson in Baltimore and, um, uh, Christian McCaffrey in, in, uh, San Francisco, along with of course, Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant as the quarterback there, that's going to be a great game. And I'm really looking forward to the rest of these playoffs. I think it's going to be outstanding. what do you make of it?
0: I have a soft spot for franchises that have gone years, in this case, decades without that, uh, home playoff win. And it was just so great for, uh, the fan base I loved it. I love watching the Detroit Lions. And yeah, I'm intrigued. I'm I'm in now on watching that team and I really hope they uh they give the Niners a run for their money. We'll we'll see what happens there. Let's uh let's talk a little curling as we like to do Ted. And uh you know there's obviously some interesting storylines as we come out of the Grand Slam of Curling's latest event, the Co-op Canadian Open and look ahead to many of the provincial championships coming up this week ahead of the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. In the Montana's Briar. Are there some storylines in particular, Ted, that you're focused on here as we approach late January?
1: Well, I don't know how you couldn't be focused on Rachel Homan's team, which has now won two Grand Slams in a row, has narrowed the gap uh, just a few points behind Svetlana Terenzoni of Switzerland for number one in the world, running away with it in the CTRS standings in Canada. I think this might just be the year that Carrie Anderson gets toppled as Canada's uh, top team. She's won, her team has won four years in a row. Rachel Homan has won championships before, but it's been a while. Her team just looks outstanding with Tracy Fleury uh, at third, and Emma Miskew and Sarah Wilkes. Uh, unbeatable to this point. We've seen teams do that in Grand Slam season and then not come through in the uh, in the Scotties, but I really think that Homan has to be the team to beat there. And I do think that um, the, the one issue that that they could have i guess is that uh, when you you don't get to play in your provincials you miss out on a chance to really prepare for the scotties and so homan and jennifer jones and carrie Anderson won't play in their provincials this week and they're gonna go into the scotties with rest but not um maybe not sometimes it'll take a little longer to get sharp once you get to the scotties um what do you think man there's like Four teams getting in now on wild cards, plus a defending champion on the women's side for the Scotties. It's getting less and less about the provincial championships, isn't it? And yet there's still some really interesting ones in Ontario, Alberta, Winif- Manitoba and B.C.
0: Yeah, I always follow the provincial playdowns with interests. Always, uh, always cool to see some of those teams. We saw it yesterday in Saskatchewan where uh, the young Ackerman squad uh, delivered a win there. And they were just so excited in their early 20s. And you can really sense that that provincial title, you know, obviously in a curling mad province like that, they really, you know, it's it's just a moment for them, something they've wanted to do for years. So I think it's great that the provincial still delivers that. But when it comes to the nationals, yeah, it's really interesting with the Scotties this year with that extra so-called wild card. I know they're not calling it wild card teams anymore an interesting change I don't know if you knew that Teddy instead of team wildcard two and three they're going to be calling it team Manitoba Jones team Ontario Homan in addition to the provincial reps that will be coming in
1: so interesting right, angle this yeah, year. Right. thanks for giving me some news
0: yeah yeah just a little news I um uh, I had it tucked away in a in a towards the bottom of a story I wrote last week I guess you don't read my stuff but that's okay it's neither here nor there <laughs> but uh yeah it's it's i mean Rachel Holman obviously a great storyline this season really seems settled in now flurry throwing third Rachel throwing last rock and a solid front end that's had uh you know a season and a half now i guess to really uh find its form they're uh they appear to be the favorites i would say even though Kerry Anderson is the four time defending champ they do seem like they're they're headed on a collision course but there's going to be so many strong teams With Jennifer Jones, with those two wildcard entries, you're going to have strong CTRS representation. And then you've got teams like Krista McCarville. She comes out of Northern Ontario. She may have already locked it up. I don't know. I don't have the Northern Ontario uh, playdowns in front of me here, but uh, that may be coming up this week. But, I mean, so many solid teams like that. It's going to be an excellent event.
1: No doubt. And, of course, on the men's side, uh, Bruce Mowat wins the Grand Slam. It's been an all-international Season for Grand Slam winners with Joel Rotornaz of Italy winning the other ones. Canadian teams, Brendan Botcher's team has been outstanding. Brad Gushu as well. I, I don't think they're in, in major trouble there. But um, again, there's going to be that situation leading up to the Briar with some teams that aren't playing. And, uh, and w- it'll be interesting to see how those provincial playdowns, you know, just how exciting they are when you take some of the best teams out of the mix.
0: Yes, and I know we uh, we when we had our uh, our planning discussion, you you mentioned that uh, you wondered whether there should be a Grand Slam like second tier yeah. event added added to the circuit, and obviously they do one of those tier two events uh, on the uh, on the series. But do you think Ted that there's uh, a need a a desire to have even more uh, even more curling at, at those competitions with the inclusion of a second tier?
1: Yeah, I I just think the problem is there's a really big gap between the first tier, the, you know, the real, uh, the the Grand Slammers, uh, the the six teams, let's say just on the men's side in particular, only six teams out of 16 get into the Grand Slam. There's a whole lot of other really good teams in Canada that are near that cusp, but they don't have those great places to play. They don't get to play against the international competition as much. They don't get to um, hone their skills in those really, great situations like in arenas and whatnot. And um, and and I think there needs to be something for them because otherwise there's just this huge gap between the absolute elites and the ones who are trying to reach that spot. How do those ones ever reach that spot if they don't have somewhere to graduate from? So I have talked to lots of curlers who would suggest that there should be something like that. I mean, you can't put it on the Grand Slam tour to do it. It might have to be something separate. They might have to incorporate, they might incorporate some more things if they can. To try to make it work, but you know, put a situation where somebody can win a tier two event and play their way in to the tier one events. Uh, it, you know, there's there's secondary tours in golf, and curling has emulated golf for many years in terms of how it wants to have uh cash tours and and playing for points and that kind of thing, um, you know, uh and and overall uh tour tours as opposed to just Canadian championships. Um, or you know national championships, provincial championships. And so I could see something like that where you would have a secondary tour that kind of you can graduate from. There certainly seems to be an appetite for it with some of the curlers that I talk to.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I'm of the opinion that yes, I think a second tier tour could work in theory, but I think it's more important to get that first tier tour really humming. And we've seen so many events dropped. We've seen so-so attendance at a lot of these events. And I think the bigger picture here is that curling has a real in-game entertainment problem when it comes to getting fans into the venues, getting people interested in the sport. And we know it's very popular among the 40 and upset. How do they make the sport more appealing for those under the age of 40? I think curling has a tremendous amount of potential. If they could ever figure out, that out then I think you can get to the point where you add secondary tours and really make the sport um but I think there's a lot of work to be done and as we've touched on in the past uh Curling Canada's new CEO Nolan Thiessen I'm sure that's uh on his to-do list let's uh let's talk some Sports Illustrated Ted, uh sad news I know we touched on it with Cahal I uh I, I used to be a subscriber back in the day I can just picture the Hulk Hogan maybe 1985 edition where it was posed like this uh and that was like a, a wow moment for me when that showed up in the mail i was a huge pro wrestling guy growing up and to see the hulkster like that on the cover of si it really meant something did you have a favorite cover when you think back to your uh si reading days
1: oh boy that's a tough one i i didn't think about that so i i'm not sure that i do have one that i can pull out like that but i did I did have a large collection of them uh, that started in my parents' house, and I took along with me on travels uh, to become a journalist to Moose Jaw and Brandon and Winnipeg and whatnot. But I did end up putting them in some boxes and uh, and haven't looked at them for a while. And I did stop, stop subscribing quite a few years ago. I guess it can't be too much of a surprise that a magazine, you know, a physical magazine, is something that's going by the wayside. I mean, these are just like. Print newspapers and local news on television—they're things that are endangered because of the way the world is. But Sports Illustrated had created a brand as well online, and in fact, it had branched out a lot. And there, there was a there was a curling section in Sports Illustrated. You know, there's specific hockey writers and baseball writers and football writers and and whatnot. And and they had, they they looked it looked a lot different from what it was way back when. So you assume that they were making a transition that was going to work, but it seems like with some questionable ownership and, um, you know, some questionable decisions. Uh, There was certainly an AI, uh, you know, an AI scandal that came out that uh, many people talked about for a while before this happened. And then for them to, you know, be going by the wayside, it seems to have uh, laid off all their staff. It's, it's just the end of an era. And I mean, I'm not going to say I'm not disappointed because I am, but I'm not that surprised to be honest
0: yeah i i agree it's uh sad to see that the news of course uh dozens of uh sports writers you know just kind of blindsided by it and it's interesting. i was listening to uh the ringer podcast um the press box earlier today and the uh the podcast host had written what he said was si's obit on three different occasions and now this appears to be the final one but uh We'll have to wait and see what develops there. I understand there's still a slight chance they might reform or rebrand or do something, but uh, sad news. Uh, of course, a lot, a lot of uh, sports fans love the old SI, the old hard copy going way back and, and all that great sports writing over the years. So sad news there. Let's uh, let's pick it up a bit here, Ted, with uh, the countdown clock to pitchers and catchers reporting. What's it? It's Let's see, it's January 22nd as we record, less than a month. February 15th I believe is the date in Dunedin, Florida, the boys of summer are back. Not a lot of change when it comes to the Blue Jays off season and we've touched on some of the bigger moves in MLB in recent uh, episodes here, but uh I don't know you uh you bleed blue Ted, what's uh what's your take on the Toronto Blue Jays off season so far?
1: I don't know about that uh, last part you just said, but uh you know, I was an Expos fan growing up actually, so I you know, I did follow the Jays, certainly when they won their World Series and things like that. But, you know, I don't know about the bleeding blue part, but I will say this. Uh, they certainly it seems like they were willing to swing for the fences, <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, of their pursuit of free agents, obviously, with the Shohei Otani situation and whatnot. But, you know, it didn't work out. So it's looking like there's not going to be a whole lot of change. Like you said, they're probably going to have to rely on pitching and defense again. Um you know, and that's not a terrible thing because their rotation, I think, was ranked third in the league um, last season with guys like Kevin Gausman and Chris Bassett and Jose Brios. I mean, if you're going to bring back and that most of that rotation and work with it again, you know, you're going to have a chance. They made the playoffs last year. You're going to have a chance again. Are you going to be able to, you know, make? are you making that huge splash, that huge marketing splash? Are you making that huge um, announcement? Here we are. We're the Blue Jays. We're going for it. Well, obviously not, but is there going to be enough talent there? Certainly with some of those good hitters that they have to have a successful season, I would certainly think so.
0: Yeah, they really need a left-handed DH. And I think they will sign one over the next few weeks. That's arguably the biggest area of concern right now. Cause yes, their pitching staff is really quite loaded. They were so healthy last year. That's going to be the big thing coming in. Can that, that starting four, of the pitchers you mentioned, so you got Gossman, Bassett, uh, Burrios, and Kikuchi, can they maintain their health and still deliver the 30-plus starts that they managed to do in 2023? If they do, I think the Jays will be right in the mix again because, I mean, as they say, good pitching beats good hitting. But they need to – well, they need to see whether Alec Manoa can – uh Return to the starting rotation and be a quality starter the way he was in 2022 when he finished third in the American League Cy Young Award voting. That's a, probably the biggest question mark heading into spring training. There was the reported signing of Yariel Rodriguez to a four-year deal at $32 million in recent days. Now, that's not official. It's just reports saying uh, that that's, that he's going to be signing in Toronto. He pitched in Cuba and in Japan in recent years pitched for Cuba at the World Baseball Classic last year. And by all accounts, could be that uh, that depth guy that the Jays would need, kind of be in that fifth or sixth spot in the rotation, or could be slotted into what's already a pretty solid bullpen. So in addition to the Kevin Kiermaier signing, he'll be returning in center field. They picked up utility man Isaiah Kiner-Falefa as well. It's been rather quiet aside from those moves. So I would expect general manager Ross Atkins to be active over the next couple of weeks. And they need to start with that left-handed DH. And they might do something else, too. We'll have to see. Hasn't ruled out trades, of course. So I think there will be some Blue Jays news over the coming weeks ahead of spring training.
1: All right, man. I'm rubbing my hands together here for those who are just listening and can't see it. Because I think we're going to get that story now, aren't we? The one Cajol Let's from... do
0: it. Yeah, the all-timers. Here we go. So 2018... Yes, 2018, Pyeongchang Olympics in South Korea. I was stationed in the mountains like I was in Sochi. There are so many Canadians who do so well in the events that are located usually about an hour from the main hub where the hockey and the curling is usually going on. Up in the mountains, you get slope style, you get half pipe, you get, you know, the skiing events, the the luge, the bobsled, whatever it is. Uh, So I was up there and I was working on night shift. So I was on like, you know, whatever, a four to eleven p.m. type gig so I thought I'd get up attack the day by going for a hike across the just across the road and up the mountain so off I go I got the tunes going and I you know I see some uh some families out and about and I'm like this is great you know here we are we're just just loving the vibe in South Korea and trying to find some balance as as we often try to do at an Olympics which are just a whirlwind so I was enjoying the tunes and I get I don't know, I'm like 20 minutes into my hike and I'm like, ah, maybe I should turn around. You know, I've kind of had, had enough. And I walk over this log and I'm like, oh, I'll just go up this little ridge here and then I'll be good and then I'll turn around another 50 yards or so. So I go up and I'm looking at my 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 phone because I've got the tunes going. I look down and then look up and three fully kitted South Korean police officers security officials I don't know what but they were ready to rock in their camo with machine pointed at me and I'm like what is going on so I, <laughs> I take off my headphones I'm like whoa hey guys how are you what's going on there's one guy's like you shouldn't be here I'm like shouldn't be here I'm just going for a hike there's families around what are you talking about he's like no 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 come with me and I'm like oh my god this is not good so, so they, I'm like okay I'm like, I showed them my accreditation. I'm like, look, I'm here with the media, Canadian press. They're like, no, come with me. So we start walking down and in my head, I'm like, okay, I got 8% juice on my phone. Mm. I'm up in the mountains where cell phone range is limited at best. Who am I going to call? What's the plan here? We get down about 15 minutes. And these guys, like I said, like, I don't think I've ever had a point it at you before, Ted, is a trippy experience. Not to mention when there's three or four of them coming at like every direction, just like in the movies. It's like Rambo. Anyway, we walked down about 20 minutes and I'm like, you know, just sweating up the storm here. Like, what is going on? And why is this happening? It's so bizarre. Just up for a hike. And a new security guy comes up and this guy is just in plain clothes. But you could just tell that he meant business, you know. And I'm like, hey, how are you? He's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, good. Yeah, just out for a hike. Got my cred here. Your your friends here said I should uh, I should head back to wherever I was wherever I was uh, down to the bottom of the hill. What's what's happening? What are we gonna do? And he said, Yeah, um, hmm. come with me. And we go down these steps. We go down these steps, and at the finally towards the main parking lot. And I'm like, Okay, we're gonna get some answers here now finally. And these three. Like fully loaded SUVs with you know the black windows, the whole thing pull up. As this guy's walking me down, the guy's the full kit, and the machine went back at this point. They've handed me off, so I'm like, "What's going on here?" But I was just out for a hike. He says, um "Well, you're not really supposed to be walking in that area. I know it wasn't blocked off, but uh, you shouldn't have been there. But um, you're here to cover the Olympics, right?" I'm like, "Yeah." Okay, well be on your way then. Have a good night. And I'm like, whoa, okay. And I went and went back to the media thing. Heart was pumping. Not quite sure why uh, Why they needed to get the machine. Up, but uh, that was the story from uh, that day in South Korea.
1: Well, you are a very sinister looking guy. There's no doubt about it. And, um, you know, I, I remember you telling me that story when we were there. And it's still a classic. I don't know how I follow that one up, to be honest. I mean, I got nothing compared to that. But I will tell one from the Olympics as well. Uh, this was from 2022 in, um, in Beijing. And I happened to be staying in the same hotel as Christine Brennan, who's an absolutely legendary journalist from the United States. You know, she's on CNN a lot. She's, she's, she's really something. She, and she covers all the big events. And the Olympics, of course, is one of the biggest ones. So I was just having my breakfast buffet. You had to sit at little tables um, that had plastic in between them. Uh, You you weren't supposed to actually be able to talk to the person across from you because of, you know, possible germs and whatnot. Uh, And then so so really, it was nothing to go up and sit with another person because you really weren't supposed to talk to them anyway. But as it happened, she was quite chatty. And so I introduced myself to her. She introduced herself to me. And I thought that was really cool. Really neat to meet Christine Brennan. And she said, uh, you know, she started talking. She said she was from Toledo, Ohio. And I said, well. That's the home of Max Klinger from MASH. I am dating myself here, obviously. And she says, yeah, and he still lives there. And I'm like, well, Klinger's just a character, right? So like, and she goes, yeah, but Jamie Farr is from Toledo as well. The guy who played him. She goes, he's a friend of mine. I'm going to phone him. (laughs) (laughs) She dials up. He's about 90 years old, (laughs) maybe 87 or something like that. She dials up. Jamie, there's a guy here who's a fan of yours. Say hi. <laughs> <laughs> and I just couldn't believe that that was my morning, getting just having my breakfast at the uh, Beijing Olympics. But uh, I sure appreciated it. And uh, it was awfully kind of Christine and uh, and really a a story to remember for a long time.
0: That's great. I love it. That story's right up there, if not better than mine. I, uh,
1: uh,
0: I'm not a huge MASH guy. Were you a big MASH guy growing up?
1: I am a huge MASH guy. In fact, uh, uh, I, I've played a, a MASH trivia game and nobody can beat me at it. It's uh, My brothers think they're good, but no. And I've never lost a game of it in my life. So, Because I watched it with my parents growing up and then there was repeats on for years and years. I've seen every episode probably 20 times. And my brother just gave me for Christmas a series of books, like little paperbacks that are about MASH, but it's like MASH goes to London, MASH goes to Moscow, you know M- mash goes to vegas and and it's the, the the original author of the book that spawned the movie which ended up turning into the series wrote these books uh to sort of capitalize on the success of uh of what mash was back in the 70s uh, as a tv series so i'm even going to read some of those while i'm sitting on the beach in mexico i think
0: well i knew you're a big sopranos guy ted but i had no idea about mash great stuff
1: pretty good at the Sopranos I, uh... studio too. i gotta tell you yeah yeah <laughs> That's
0: uh, one of the best shows of all time. You know, when we uh, when we first started talking about creating this pod, it was for stories like the ones we heard today. So thanks to you and thanks to Cajal Kelly, the Globe and Mail, who simply delivered as our guest with uh, some great stories, great insight in his time in the biz. I'd also like to give special thanks to producer Alex Antoniadis, the Toronto Metropolitan University Podcast Lab, and social media intern, Ryan McMahon. Music by Tuesday Night Jam. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and hit that subscribe button when you listen to us, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Ted. A pleasure. Looking forward to episode five.
1: And we'll see you from the beach next time.
0: Safe travels, buddy.